Would you take your Bibles and open with me, please, to 1 John, the first letter of John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 5 all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. And um, I want to be brief this morning in my comments, if that's possible, because I really want us to spend ample time at the table of the Lord this morning. What I hope will happen with the Lord's blessing is that, that the text this morning will prepare our hearts to worship and receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. First John is written as a means of assurance. Uh, John writes as a warm-hearted pastor to assure those that trusting in Christ leads to the reception of the gift of eternal life. And John writes a series of tests, if you will, litmus tests, cycles of tests are woven throughout this brief letter so that we might know that we've come to really trust in Christ and have received indeed the gift of eternal life. The text before us this morning is not a call to perfection. It's a call to honesty. It reminds us that God knows us. He knows our thoughts, our words, our motives. He knows our actions as well as our neglects. It's a call to respond to the God who is light, a light that reveals us and a light that leads us inevitably to the grace of God that's found only in Christ. Would you follow in your copies of God's word as we begin in the first chapter, 1 John, verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Mark and Donna, that's really their names. We'll give you the last name. They live in another state, but a couple whom I personally knew. Adopted with full knowledge a son who had many deficits. There were physical and mental challenges that would um, be insurmountable. But they wanted a son and they adopted Tyler because they wanted Tyler. It was a costly love. It was a love that cost them dearly in the early years. It's a love that continues to cost them even to this day. When I was a kid growing up in Nashville uh, playing pickup sports and uh, uh, off of, I lived on the wrong side of the tracks. If you know anything about Nashville, I lived in the bad side of West Nashville. Behind me was a a, a cul-de-sac, a cove called James Court. And there was a lot of boys around and we played pickup sports. Whatever the season was, that's what we played. And some of you guys may recall, uh, particularly uh, some of you older men may recall, playing pickup sports. And uh, inevitably, when you would pick teams, somebody would be a captain. And when you'd pick teams, there would inevitably be one kid left that nobody wanted on either team. And you'd kind of fight over him. You'd say, well, no, you take him. No, you can have him. Well, we had him last time. No, you take him. When God chose to save us, he knew exactly what he was getting. There were no surprises. 
There's nothing about God that surprises him about us. It's a costly love. It's a love that costs dearly. And we see something of the cost of God's loving us before us visibly this morning in the elements of the Lord's table. John, throughout this letter, is going to write about the love of God. But he begins in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, by reminding us that you and I live visibly before this God. We always are in the presence of God. We're always before his sight, always before his gaze. This is the way he says it in verse 5 of chapter 1. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Translated very quickly, that means simply that we live visibly before the God with whom we have to do. Everything about us is known before the Lord. There's nothing hidden about us. Light is a, is a characteristic of moral purity. It's a, it's a characteristic of God's absolute, consummate holiness. In fact, John is somewhat of a theologian. He uses this word, God is light here. There's no article in front of it. That simply means that he's not referring to a characteristic of God. He's not saying that God has light. He's not referring to an attribute of God. He's describing the absolute essence and being of God. In the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, John puts in the lips of Jesus this summation of God's essence, that God is a spirit. And later in 1 John, John would tell us that God is love. He's describing the essence of God, his moral purity, his his impeccable character. But there's something about light that shows up in our lives. It shows us up, I should say, for who and what we really are. It's as if... God's light shines like a million-watt candle laser beam into the corners and the secrets and the shadows of our lives. And he brings to the surface who and what we really are. Not what we want people to think we are, not what we imagine we are, but who and what we really are. He shines his light into our struggle with pornography and lust and various forms of impurity. He shines his light into our over-dependence on alcohol and food and medications and other substances. He shines his light into our family dysfunctions. And he shines his light into our anger, bitterness, envy, fear, spiritual neglect, even the inward emptiness that some of us brought to worship this morning. He shines his light into all of it. He sees all of it and he brings it all to the surface so that we might see ourselves in his light as we really are. Do we really understand what it is to live visibly before the Lord? The writer of Hebrews in the fourth chapter said that there's nothing hidden from God. All things are open before him with whom we have to do. The psalmist said in Psalm 36 that in God's light we see light. That is, in the presence of God, in the light that God is and has, we really see ourselves as we really are. And yet, brethren, this is not a it's not a call to perfection. This text isn't. At the heart of it is a call to honesty, to be honest before the Lord about ourselves, to engage in real serious self-examination before the Lord. And what would honesty before God look like exactly? I mean, how how can we be honest before God? He knows anyway. He The psalmist says in Psalm 139 that he knows the word on our tongue before we ever say it. He knows when we sit down and when we stand up. He saw us when we were being formed or fashioned in our mother's womb. What would honesty look like? Let me make a couple of quick suggestions from the text. First of all, honesty would mean that we're honest in verse 6 about the discrepancies that exist in our lives. Look at verse 6 again, if you would, please. Chapter 1. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The, the fact is, there is in all of us, in me as well as in you, in all of us, there is a space, a discrepancy, a chasm large or small between what we say we believe and how we actually live. Between what we profess and what we practice. That's a sanctification gap, if you will. And in that space, the light of God shines into that space. And we see ourselves in his light for what we really are. But but again, this text doesn't call us to perfection. It calls us to honesty. And so if I'm honest before the Lord, I admit those discrepancies between what I say and and how I live and the space between I'm honest before God about it. Football season is my favorite time of year. I'm a SEC football fan where they play real football, I may add. And I uh, took the liberty the other day to, to, to print off the SEC schedule. It's taped to the back of my study door here at Gracie Van. I've already kind of surveyed. And, and in another week or so, I'll be marking my daytimer for games that are must-see games. And when you go to a football game and you buy a program, you look on that program... And uh, what you see sometimes is a lot of embellishment. They don't, they are big, they're plenty big, but they kind of fudge on the weight because they know the opponents are also looking at that program. They're plenty tall, but they fudge a little bit on the height because they know the opposing team also has looked at the program. They fudge a little bit on skill levels and scouting reports because they know the opponents also buy and read those programs. Well, between what we say and what we are, this gap is the area in which God calls us not to be perfect, but to be honest about the difference between what I say and who I really am in secret before him. Honesty would look like being honest about our endless capacity for self-deception in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We can be honest about our struggles with sin. We can be honest about the issues that we wrestle with. Uh, some, um, some years ago, about two or three years ago, we had a Bradford pear in our front yard. We live in a little community in Collierville called Pembroke. And um, I had the Bradford pear taken down. And I had the, the stump removed. And... Um, Several months ago, I was driving by, pulled out of the drive, and driving one morning to come to Grace. And guess what I saw? Some little twigs popping up out of the ground. Well, I thought all of that had been removed. I thought all my parenting issues were over until I started keeping our three-year-old and our two-year-old. And, you know, all those issues began to surface back. And what verse 8 is really saying is, is that we can be honest about the things that we struggle with before the Lord. We can be honest about those issues that we thought were long dead and buried and yet we find twigs springing back up and we're wrestling with the same issues again and again. It means I can be honest about the mess in my heart and I can be honest about the mess in my family and I can call that mess what it really is. I can be honest about sin before God because he knows and because his light shines into my life. We can be honest about issues of belief and struggling to believe. In verse 10, it says, if we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. At at the heart of this really is unbelief. It's, It's not believing all that God has said about us and 
all that God has said about grace and all that God has said about sin and all that God has said about the way of salvation. And I can be honest about my unbelief and my struggle. Fred Hammond wrote a song that I really, really, really love a few years back. It's called Be Magnified. And in that song, it starts like this. Unlike Dr. Young, I'm not going to sing it. Now, if y'all keep this just between us, I actually have a better voice than Dr. Young. But I'll not sing the verse. But it says something like this, that I've made you too small in my eyes. Oh, God, forgive me. I've leaned too much on the wisdom of men. Oh, God, forgive me. And what verse 10 is really saying is those issues of doubt. Does God hear? Does God care? Am I really who and what he says I am? Is Christ really as great as the scripture says that he is? Can I have the assurance of eternal life that this epistle promised me? All of those inward issues and struggle, all of those things that we hide behind the polite Sunday smiles, the quiet, desperate lives that we really live before God, I can be honest before him about them. Augustine said the root of sin is pride and self-indulgence. Luther said the root of sin is unbelief. We just fail to believe what God says about us and what God says about himself. I don't know who's correct, but what I do know is that beneath all of these false claims in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 is some level of deception. Deception about myself, deception to others, deception about God. And what this text says is that we can be honest before the Lord. We can admit all of that. In fact, verse 9 gives us a gracious invitation to be honest. It's a a great verse. Look at it again, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession's not for information. When I confess my sins, it's not as if God suddenly finds out about it and he says, boy, I wish you hadn't told me that. He already knows. Confession is me agreeing with what God says is wrong about me. It's from the word homologeo. It means to say or to speak the same thing. I'm agreeing with God about the discrepancies. I'm agreeing with God about the self-deception. I'm agreeing with God about my unbelief. I'm just fessing up. I'm owning my sin. Do you notice the promise appended to honesty in verse 9? If we're honest, if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful. And he's just to forgive us our sins. God promises forgiveness and makes promise possible through the finished and perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does two things in this verse. He removes the debt. That's what forgiveness means. me. It means to remove the debt, to remove the, the moral obligation, and he cleanses the stain associated with the sin. Confession rests on the integrity of God, not our integrity. It rests on the character of God and his faithfulness, not my character and not your character and certainly not our faithfulness. He is faithful. He's faithful to what? His covenantal promise. In Jeremiah 31, that that we would know forgiveness, that we would be forgiven, that we would know that we're forgiven, that we would know what it is to be clean and holy before the Lord. Though all of those promises are secured to us by the finished work of Christ, the work who's represented before us on this table. So here's gospel-based honesty about ourselves. Here's the anchor of honesty. That in the light of God, we not only see ourselves and we could be led to despair, we could be led to utter frustration. 
And certainly that's what the accuser of the brethren would want to happen. But instead of being led to frustration and despair and hopelessness, we're led to a better appreciation of the grace of God in Christ. Melinda and I were in St. Louis over a long weekend in June. And among the many things that we did, uh, we, we toured the, the Bush Brewery there. I didn't want to go, but Melinda did. Um, and uh, I don't think she's in here. That's why I'm so bold. Um, if she's here the second hour, that's just between us, all right? Uh, but among the many things we did, we ate at Zia's in the historic hill section south of downtown St. Louis. It's a neighborhood that produced such baseball greats as Yogi Berra and Joe Garagiola. And Zia's is a quaint little restaurant. It's got all the ambiance you want in an authentic Italian restaurant. White tablecloths, waiters with accents, photos of celebrities on the walls, and low lighting and rich pasta dishes. And the funny thing happens about uh, me eating rich pasta dishes in these dimly lit, authentic Italian restaurants. I feel pretty good about myself and my, uh, my table manners until I step out into the St. Louis bright, sunny Saturday, June afternoon, and discover that I have literally sprayed myself like an Uzi with spaghetti sauce. I am riddled with stains. Now, I had the stains all along, but I didn't know it until I stepped out into the light. And guys, we have them. And when we step into the light of God's truth, we see them. And why do we see them? Because the light leads to confession and the promise of forgiveness and cleansing. In fact, it leads more to that. It it leads to the the gospel truth that we live by the grace of God, that we worship by the grace of God, that we serve by the grace of God, that we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning by the grace of God, not because of we're, we're worthy, not because of our merit, but because of the worth and merit of Christ. We live. By the grace of God. That's what the text tells us in chapter 2 in verses 1 and 2. We have an advocate who speaks to the Father on our behalf in verse 1. It translates parakletos. One called alongside our intercessor, our mediator, our defender. The scripture tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Charles Wesley captured it like this in his little hymn. He says that that his five bleeding wounds do for us plead. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive him. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Here's grace. Honesty leads to grace. I can be honest about me because in the place of honesty, I find one who speaks to the Father on my behalf. And in verse 2, I find one who covers my guilt and my shame. Because the text says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It carries forward the Old Testament idea of the Day of Atonement when the high priest went into the holy place. And he sprinkled blood there on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God. And the law screamed guilt. You've had other gods before me. You've taken my name in vain. You've bowed down to other things beside me. You've not kept the Sabbath day holy. You've murdered in life and in tongue and in motive and in deed. And you've not been faithful to your marriage vows and and a host of other sins. And all of it screamed guilt until the high priest went in with the blood of another. And he poured the blood on top of the law. And the law was silent. And in that place that lid with the blood on top, was called the mercy seat. 
You see, we're honest before God because we find forgiveness. We find cleansing. We find one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. And we find the covering that we so desperately need for our guilt and our shame. Living in the light simply means, guys, that we're just honest before the Lord. And the motive for that honesty is in the place of honesty we find grace. J.I. Packer, knowing God, said there's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic. That it's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. And the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. And nothing, nothing can quench God's determination to bless me. So how do we come to the table of the Lord this morning? We come honestly. We come honestly with all of our flaws, all the baggage, all the discrepancies, all that we are. We come before the Lord. And in this place, we find grace. Father, would you take the Lord's Supper this morning? And would you use it to burn the truths of the gospel into our soul that we're able to feed upon Christ as he's offered to us in this bread and in this cup because of the riches of your grace to us in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory. Amen.